When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Techno Roll, a special Let It Roll Maxi series discussing Simon Reynolds' book, Energy Flash, a journey through rave music and dance culture, hosted by Nate Wilcox and Ryan Harkness. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate and Ryan discuss EDM's sudden explosion of popularity in the United States in the 2010s. Email us at LetItRollPodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll, or should I say techno roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and I'm joined by Ryan Harkness as we wrap up our discussion of Simon Reynolds' book, Energy Flash, which I don't have in front of me, and I forgot the subtitle. But we're on the final chapter from the 2013 edition, which is called The Future is Now, EDM in the USA, or... 2012, the year Rave broke America. Ryan, did Rave really break America? I mean, it broke in America. But before we get into that, I'm just curious as to I, I want to clarify this for people who are following along with the book, maybe, and are, they're looking at the book and they're saying, where is this chapter? Because our copies of the book don't have the chapter. This was uh, nicely, we- kindly sent to us by Simon Reynolds. But does it exist in any of the physical or digital copies of uh, of Yes. Of- yeah, I believe it's from the 2013 edition, which we have the 2012 edition, um, and it's got a pink cover on Amazon. So I wasn't aware, or for whatever reason, I thought that was the older edition, um, and that's why I bought the 2012 edition. It's also slightly more expensive, and I'm cheap. Um, so, but yeah, I think it's the uh, 2013 edition, um, and that's available. And both of the editions seem to be in print on Amazon. So that's, yeah, that's, that's yeah. For for anybody following along with the black book, this is why instead of us moving forward into a chapter, which was an interview with Simon Reynolds, and we're going to do much better. We're actually going to interview Simon Reynolds next week and get our own interview in. Uh, But instead we're, we're, we're doing this very mysterious futures now EDM in the USA or 2012, the year rave broke America. And it, and and it did, it did, it it broke into America and it broke America in, in a lot of ways. And it finally, finally did what everybody was waiting for it to do for about 15 years, which was uh, like hit the mainstream in a big way. And that it did. And move and, units and make money, which is the most important thing as far as everybody is concerned, apparently. Yes. Moving units and making money. I mean, you know, as NWA said, that's what life's all about or something. But so Reynolds starts the chapter out by returning to the United States in August of 2012. This is the first time he's been to a big rave in the States since 1996. And we talked about that. That was a rave up in Wisconsin. I'm blanking on the name. But he goes to the Hard Summer Festival in L.A. in August 2012. And the first thing he sees is a sign that says no backpacks, no dolls, no toys, no candy with a K, no plush or furry items, no glow sticks, light gloves or other light toys, no bandanas, gas masks or pacifiers. What is this all about? Ah, well, for for hard specifically, it's as much an uh, an aesthetic decision 
as it was a uh, a legal decision I, for for a while after uh, old Joe Biden passed a uh, a rave law in America, you could get into serious trouble just for having you know Vicks vapor rub or 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 uh, soothers and stuff like that. They they would see this as uh, as uh, drug paraphernalia and be able to really come down hard legally on everybody. But at this point, by 2012, it's a bit different and. Uh, a lot of this stuff about no candy, no plush or furry items and stuff like that was more the the organizers of Hard Summer Festival trying to put a specific uh, aesthetic uh, implement implement a look onto the event. The, their hard events were kind of a, a a a response to Electric Daisy Carnival being the real flower power event. Hard events they wanted people to show up looking hard and ready to rage. So it was it's like a 50-50. It's a bit of a throwback to what was going on in 2007, where like legally they couldn't allow this stuff in, and now it was more of just it was a it was a choice. It was like a dress code. I see, I see. And as Reynolds says, the promoters realized the only way for their company to survive in the face of hostility from local politicians and police was to put as much distance as possible between themselves and raves. Daft disreputable past but once he gets in there he says it still looks an awful lot like a rave <laughs> he's, and i mean in no time at all he's describing some girl dancing in front of her stoned boyfriend with her lights uh you know her, her light gloves um so you know the rules are honored in the breach as well he says the biggest differences are that the boys pants aren't as crazy stupid wide which is a good thing and the girls have sexed up their look considerably so um you know, the politics of that, I'll leave to somebody else to debate. But he also says that while I came across a fair few people off their faces, that's British for I saw a lot of people who were screwed up on drugs. Quote, the overall atmosphere is less overtly druggy than it used to be back in the day. So um, that's that's the sort of cultural setting. Then he gets to the music and he says there's something else different about hard and EDM and EDM doesn't appear in the book really i mean edm has become a term for all electronic dance music which is what it stands for but it's also describing a particular kind of electronic dance music that suddenly became very popular early in the 2010s he calls it the ungainly term that's now replaced techno um but but back to the music he's saying on a formal level the beats and riffs and the way the music is put together and the way it moves it doesn't seem that different from the rave floor fair of the 90s and early 2000s. What's different is the overall sound through which everything is sluiced, ferociously digital, a flat glare, depthless and dazzling. Staring up at the giant speaker stacks of the main hard stage, I suddenly felt they were iPod earbuds blown up to immense scale. So do you get what he's talking about with the sound? Yeah, I do. But at the same time, I feel like this might be a point where Simon Reynolds is starting to show his own age. I mean, a lot of people who came into the scene in the 90s uh, felt the same way about the electronic music being created then because it was so kind of different and plastic and uh, and robotic. So all of a sudden now you've got this new new level of uh, of technological you know, grease like slapped on top of it. And, and now it's making him feel a little bit uncomfortable and out of touch. And, uh, you know, I, I understand kind of what he's saying, but at the same time, I'm, there's a lot of things that are, that are, I call this kind of the Joe Rogan problem where he's not specifically saying there's anything wrong with it, but you can kind of hear in the tone and how he asks his questions or makes his statements that there's a little bit of disapproval in it. And uh, you can kind of read between the lines as to where his position really is. And I just don't find the negativity in, in you know, this new plastic sheen that he's talking about, this uh, bubble, this this plastic wrap that we put over all the music. So somewhere between old man yells at cloud and you kids get off my lawn. Is that it? A little bit. OK. All right. And he does point out that only one of the DJs at the Hard Fest used turntables. Everybody else used CDJs. What's a CDJ? CDJ is just, uh, you know, even CDJs are out of uh, out of use now because CDJs are, are uh, compact disc players that uh, you stick the CD in. And uh, it, at, at that point, after that, it's pretty much like a digital turntable uh, with a jog wheel on top that replaces the platter. Uh, and these days, the, you, you know, you can even get them without, you know, a CD slot on them and you just stick a USB in the corner. So they're not, you know, USB DJ didn't really catch on as a term. They're just <laughs> CDJ. I don't know why. 
I was using CDJs uh, right back in 1998, where it was basically looked like a like like just a, a gigantic black box with buttons on it. So I'm I'm an old I'm an old hat when it comes to that gear, and I'm really liking the new stuff that's out now. That it basically in, in form and function looks almost like a turntable, but it's all just digital now. I see, and also he says that Ableton Live is the alternative to CG, CDJs. What's Ableton Live? Uh, you know, it's it's mainly a digital audio workstation to to produce music in. Some people use it as a, uh, as, a as a DJ or performance tool. I find DJs that use it use it very bore, boringly most most of the time. They'll put like just you know the entire track in one channel and then the next one in another, and it all locks the groove in and makes it really easy to mix. But live performers can you know slice their tracks down into a hundred different components and assign them to buttons on a on a on a controller and really create a symphony with them. So it's, it's a, it's an iffy, iffy, like, uh, guys like Sasha, apparently were doing great things with Ableton, but you know, if you take a closer look at what he was doing, it, it, it's, it was really just a, a decent amount of crossfading as far as I'm concerned. I see. And let's go ahead and hear our first song. This is Zed with stay the night featuring Haley Williams. And that was Zed featuring Haley Williams doing Stay the Night. And why did you pick this track? Uh, you know, we're, we're trying to I was trying to create that that's uh, that feeling when you walk into uh, one of these big rave festivals, the kind of the kind of sound that you would hear in 2012. Uh, the Zed sound is very much a uh, spiritual successor to the uplifting trance sound that was so big, but it's become much more pop oriented. So and uh, as as he was talking, as Simon Reynolds was talking about in this chapter, it all kind of got put under this weird electro house um, umbrella. But it it does doesn't really stay there very effectively. It's all bubbling and boiling and trying to get out. And uh, I thought Zed Stay the Night was a a good example of, of that, where you listen to it and go, this is not what what it's being touted as. But you know, the best way to say it is, it, it is the big uplifting EDM festival sound. Yeah, I when I first heard Zed and not that track in particular, but any Zed and and heard it described as electro house, I was waiting for the 808s and 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 the four on the floor and and it sounded more like trance to me. So, well, this um, is another situation where guys on Beatport, uh, that old MP3 selling site where all the DJs get their stuff from, were producing electro house like legit proper electro house and then over a year two years three years their sound you know slowly corrupted into whatever mainstream uh dance music wanted it to be but their genre remained stuck in that electro house category on the beatport site and and so the tail starts wagging the dog uh, <laughs> because it's in the electro house sag, uh, section it's called electro house but it's not really electro house anymore it's just kind of miss uh, there was no better name for it at the time, so it was just categorized wrong, and now we're just doing it wrong. It seems like people are remembering it more as EDM. Am yeah, I wrong? Absolutely, absolutely. Like uh, that's the big catch-all for for the, the the American sound, all the commercialized festival music that was coming out at the time. There's uh, the even bigger, more headbangy. Uh, four to the floor stuff is known as big room house. If people want to get specific and want to find more more of that. But yeah, yeah, EDM is is kind of a useful catch-all. Okay, and the other big technological development was some software, um, which like FL Studio, formerly known as Fruity Loops, which I think I think a lot of the grime makers were using Fruity Loops in our last chapter, and Logic, and Reynolds again goes back to makes everything sound sort of encased in glass, like it's all been shellacked and. That's kind of a pejorative, but I do think there's some descriptive power to it, they, that they are using incredible amounts of compression and getting a really big sound. 
Um, he quotes uh, a DJ saying that it's um, descended from that roaring justice sound. Justice is a French group. I think we mentioned last week, a combination of a side chain compression, the squeezing pumping sound and brick wall limiting and brick wall limiting is if you look at the sound waves on a graph, it'll look like a block. You won't see ups and downs of the dynamics. This sound gets louder and quieter. Everything is loud. Yeah. And, if you look at music from the 60s, 70s, 80s and stuff like that, if you look at the waveform of that, it, 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 there's peaks and valleys and it, and it, it looks kind of like an earthquake. Uh, lots of lots of big squigglies for loud parts and lots of small ones for small. And now uh, there's uh, something called the sausage. And the sausage is when you look at the waveform and it, and it basically has kind of like your the ends of the sausage, which are the only narrow parts. And then it's all thick and fat all through the middle. And that is the new uh, maxed out, limited, compressed up uh, sound that's expected in order to break through the noise of modern society. Yeah, and lots of rock groups actually do it. The Jimi Hendrix reissues are bricked out. Metallica has been bricking their stuff for a long time. I think that the game there is when your track comes up on shuffle on somebody's headphones, it sounds louder than the track before it, or at least as loud as the track before it. Uh, the guy Reynolds quote says, it's literally designed to make older people's ears hurt. So always fun, always fun. Um, and then it's also a sound associated with cocaine and study drugs like Adderall. So um, the, and we'll talk about other drugs. I think ketamine is the other sound that, that will, the other drug that's we'll be talking about in this period, but definitely Cocaine and Adderall are very present in this era. And so, like you mentioned, Electro House was the dominant style at Hard Summer. You had Zed. You also had Errol Aiken, Bloody Beetroots. Reynolds says that the, their sound was descended from Daft Punk's Discovery album and then further developed by Justice and Digitalism and popularized by Dead Mouse. Um, in the United States massively. And Dead Mouse, uh, the guy running around with the, the giant plastic mouse head on his head, that, that him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, good. Even yeah. even the old guys know about Dead Mouse. You, you listen to Daft Punk's Discovery and you say, how did it get us here? Justice, it starts to make a bit more sense. And Digitalism is really the group that they're, they, they're kind of like, you know, how we're going to get into this later about how Skrillex kind of bro-stepped, uh, was the bro-step link, you know, between everything. Digitalism is is the group that took that kind of smooth, sexy, French touch electro sound and then and then really took it out for a rip-roaring, put, you know, 9,000 RPM ride. And and from there, everybody else kind of followed that and uh, and in, into the festival land. And it was so hyperactive and intense and everything else like that, that that it became a template. And that's why, you know, it's kind of Adderall induced, cocaine induced, because it's so hype. Yeah. And, and I think it's also getting to and he'll talk about this more later. But when you're playing to this size of audience, it's going to change the music. There's no way to do small, intimate sophisticated sounds in a stadium setting you've got to reach for the rafters and and turn full bono you know and do the big u2 grand gesture thing you need to channel your inner frederick mercury if you're going to be playing um you know to 350,000 people in vegas over two days and the other big style is dubstep or bro step as it was named as a pejorative but i find bro step is just way more descriptive because dubstep is an actual thing that we talked about last chapter that's almost the exact opposite of what dubstep became popularly known as in this period yeah i mean you really had to give it another name and i mean i know that dubstep the the u.s bro step sound won the dubstep battle and they now own the term dubstep but you know when you're when you're gonna go through it forensically and historically like we are uh we gotta separate the two and give dubstep back to the british people who invented it and uh and and mastered it and and give this new sound something uh descriptive and bro step bro step works yeah, and they even like it themselves. So, you know, it started out as a way to knock the style, but it was taken on. It was appropriated back by the, the people who were being slurred. And um, he points out, you know, it wasn't just Skrillex. There's also Datsik, 12th Planet in the States, Flux Pavilion, Rusco in the UK. 
uh, has very little, like we said, to do with the sound of groups like Burial or Digital Mystics that were the original dubstep. Reynolds says the original dubsteps honored roots, reggae, jungle, speed garage, used vinyl, where Brostep circulates as audio files, has a very much, you know, the future is now, the sound is dense, it's in-your-face digitalism. And Skrillex had been on the smaller stage in 2011, but by 2012, he's the headliner for the whole festival, putting on a massive audio-visual spectacle. Uh, Reynolds says that it really sounds to him more like slowed-down drill and bass, which was a sort of smarty-pants parody style of jungle and drum and bass that people like Aphex Twin and others um, were doing in the late 90s as kind of an artsy-fartsy thing. But uh, he says, you know, that the original dubstep was kind of slowed down jungle and this is slowed down drill and bass and that Skrillex is very formulaic. He likes Skrillex. Go ahead. uh, I'm just wondering if he forgot about his whole journey where he took us from jungle into speed garage and speed garage into, into dubstep. So that was, that's kind of the route that it actually took. Yeah. I doubt he forgot that, but um, he's, you know, compressing. Whenever you look back, you got to telescope, telescope the past. And Steph's telling me it's time to play another track. So, let's hear Downlink's "Raw Power." That was Downlink's Raw Power from 2012. Why did you pick that one? Oh, I feel like everybody already is familiar with the Skrillex Bro Step sound. 75% of basically what was going on uh, on at the dubstep stages and stuff like that. But I thought I'd give a little taste of the other 25% of, of dubstep that was getting a bit more experimental and led into the entire bass genre that is still kicking now. So this is this is... This is bro step. This is dubstep bro step stuff, but it's really getting to a point where it's getting very sonically stranger than just a stereotypical dubstep growl or wobble. Yeah, and and pointing towards the future. And he'll talk about this sort of bro step as one of the few genres in this period having what we would consider like a traditional linear development through time rather than just kind of mushing around. But we'll talk about that a little bit more later. Um Let's talk about Skrillex a little bit. He was 24 in 2013. His name's Sonny Moore. He came out of the hardcore punk scene. He'd been a frontman and some screamo bands. And Reynolds says that the three major developments of this chapter, meaning the period from 2007 to 2012 in dance music, mesh in this one person. So he's kind of the personification of the era. One, the unexpected resurgence of rave in the U.S., which dwarfed all previous peaks of popularity. And, you know, if you are an investor... And you'd sold uh, electronic dance music futures at, when Reynolds sold it to in 2007. You would have lost out on some major growth in this period because he thought it had peaked forever in the 1998 to 2000 boom. Well, he was wrong. Number two is the surprising rise of dubstep, aka bro step, even as it's gotten more extreme and aggressive. I thought this was a really interesting aspect. I mean, except for the absence of you know, an Axl Rose or a Bono screaming big choruses, this, I mean, I liked it immediately. This is basically guitar rock for the 2010s. Am I wrong? Uh, I mean, I don't know about that. Is that harsh? <laughs> <laughs> or just just because it's uh, the guitar riffs are so so growly and unpleasant, but everybody seems to like them? Pretty much. I mean, it, it, it hits all my dude buttons. It makes me want to go, yeah, you know, and put my hat on backwards and rage in the pit. Yeah, it was a bit of a surprise, uh, a surprise success, and I still, I still a little bit con- confused as to like, was it just something viral that happened on the internet, and then it just kind of ran from there? It's, it's, it's one of those genres that without a uh, a cadre of really devoted uh, people at the middle of it refusing to give to give up on it, it might have died out a couple of times by now. But everybody just kind of stuck with it until it morphed into something that that is huge was used in 2012 is it still that big because all i ever see is people backlashing and hating on dubstep and making it a joke 
I mean, dubstep just turned into bass, like the bass, okay. which is bigger than, which is one of the the biggest components of of, of the dan- uh, dance music scene in North America now, and and I think around the world too. I'd have to, you know, I don't want to speak out of turn here, but I know there's tons and tons of bass festivals all around my city. Uh, they're, they're big, uh, the big escapade Canada day festival, half of that is bass music. And then the big promoters in this city aren't techno or house or trance promoters anymore. They're the bass promoters. They're the ones that are the, that, that, that are the, are bringing in the real heat to the city and getting the real numbers. So, uh, you know, so the sound just evolved a little and they changed the name and kept on trucking. Exactly. Bass is an offshoot or, or a catch-all for, for dubstep and everything else that kind of wubs. All right. And I, I like the wubs, as I've said. And I'm not kidding about that. I really do like this stuff. Um, and then the third big thing that he felt Skrillex personified was the transition of electronic music culture from analog to digital and the almost complete integration of dance culture with the Internet. Blogs, message boards, social media, podcasts, YouTube, SoundCloud, websites – Beatport, et cetera, et cetera. It totally changed the game as far as how people communicated things. And a lot of gatekeepers lost their place in the puzzle. Yeah. And a lot of people were putting dubstep into their YouTube videos. All the kids that were, were up at the new technology and doing stuff, they liked this new sound and they were, they were propagating it through their content. So I guess it's not surprising that it, that it, that it managed to saturate to a point where enough people heard it, that it got critical mass. Yeah. And so then he describes a little bit about how EDM got so big in the States. He talks about the low ebb from 2004, 2005, which he had talked about in the previous chapter. He kind of goes on at more length about that, how there was a period when you'd go to the hippest dance clubs in New York City and it's a bar with not a very good sound system and it just didn't get the music across. And he was really pained by that. But he almost seems as pained by the resurgence as by the downfall in this chapter. But by 2010, you know, you're having these newly massive raves, quickly followed by ugly incidents, you know, miners sneaking in and overdosing, bad press. But this followed more like the pattern in the UK in the early 90s, where the bad press fed the popularity rather than, say, the states in the late 90s, where the bad press led to a crackdown that killed the popularity. So interesting how that plays out in different ways at different times. You had big promoters. We mentioned the hard crew. You also had Insomniac, Ultra, Electric Zoo, Identity, with a capital I and a capital D. Skrillex won three Grammys. He was on the cover of Spin and Billboard back when anybody cared about physical magazines, kind of the last days of physical magazines mattering. Um, You had the Ultra Music Fest in Miami that sold 165,000 tickets in 2012, quickly trumped by the Electric Electric Daisy Carnival in Las Vegas, which sold 320,000 tickets for a three-day concert. So, um, you know... Yeah, massive. I mean, that that will get the attention of any, uh, you know, uh, ticket selling uh, impresario in in the music business for sure. And And then that's the whole thing is the the, the big difference between kind of what happened before and how it was stamped down and what happened now. uh, There's two kind of factors to it. The first is that you had the past generation that loved all of this music going from kids into adulthood and being the people in these positions of power and being these people who finally have real jobs and money and everything else like that, being able to maneuver within the system. You had those ugly incidents and you had the bad press. uh, And the decision was made by guys like Insomniac and Ultra to to run towards regulation, uh, you know, a term that we're pretty familiar with. And because they were adults and because they had money, the system didn't buck them off like they did in the past. Now they were actually allowed to integrate in and and reform themselves and, you know, uh, be, be allowed to be taken seriously as businessmen. And and instead of the scene being back in like 2004, 2005, big cities would have, you know, raves every other weekend that where there'd be like a thousand people who would show up, but then you'd also have cops shutting everything down. It was just chaos and there was no reliability. And anytime anybody started to get a scene that was going too well, the cops would come in and completely destroy it. Uh, all of a sudden these guys come in and they have protection from the police shutdowns and, 
and they have a stability where they aren't losing, you know, twenty, thirty thousand dollars every three or four events because the city has just decided to like pull their license or whatever else like that. And and now things can grow. So, you know, all this talk about, oh, it's actually good when the system kind of fights you because then you get more publicity. Well, yes and no. When the system is actually devoted to shutting you down, they do a pretty good job. And finally, without the system fighting us so hard, this is I, I think the the scene was always there and it was always burgeoning and it was always trying to get this big. It just wasn't allowed to by the powers that be. Yeah, absolutely. And once you hit a critical mass where you're drawing 100,000 people or 300,000 people to an event, that gets really hard and 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 inefficient for the cops to try to shut that down. And yeah, they, they stopped having these festivals. I mean, other than a few things, uh, there's still some festivals out in the deserts, but those have become giant um, events and legalized. But for the most part, they ran to sports stadiums and motorsports venues the places where the local government could help control, have intense security and safety provisions, et cetera, et cetera. So the local politicians can say this is just like any other concert. And also, I think he doesn't mention this, but just the growth of festivals in general, because, you know, Daft Punk's 2006 set at Coachella is cited as the big turning point when EDM became legit. They had played in a, inside a huge glowing pyramid, and the whole bit. But that was in the context of Coachella, which had all kinds of artists that were not dance artists. So festivals became a big thing for every kind of musical performer and EDM was in there. Let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsor. And when we come back, we'll continue to talk about EDM's conquest of America. And so, yeah, so I was talking about Daft Punk's success at Coachella and you know both Skrillex and Deadmau5 modeled their audiovisual approach on that show and created these completely over the top visual and sonic fests um, with custom video packages for every song, which really limit limits how much they can improvise. I guess not at all, and puts locks them into kind of doing the same show every time. But you know when you got a hundred thousand kids that are ready to rage, they want that predictable quality thing it's kind of similar to what the rolling stones have done over the years you know you don't see a lot of keith richards ronnie wood guitar solos you hear mick jagger putting out the hits the same way every time so you get you know you pay your money you get what you paid for yeah there, there's some there's some elements like dead mouse uh, basically admitted that he was locked in and he just presses play and 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 everything kind of runs off of a dat and that's that. Skrillex, I think for a while was was kind of locked in, but his visuals were, you know, the different songs would have different visual packages, but it's not like he wasn't choosing. Skrillex has always been more of a DJ than Deadmau5. Deadmau5 always, never, always kind of just said that he's performing his music while Skrillex has DJ cred, does DJ, mixes it up, doesn't come in with like just a, you know, one hour wave file and and just play that. But uh, a lot of these festivals did start getting that rigid. I mean, if you have pyro connected to stuff, you know, it, it would make sense that you could just press the pyro button at the right time. But if you're trying to get the explosions to time right with the drop of the music, then it starts to get to the point where you need to to really take out any kind of uh, flexibility that you have. So it, it's kind of gone back and forth. I think 2015, it was very locked in. A lot of these guys were coming in, playing the same sets over and over. Now you've got to return to more flexibility and and not being locked in and people really uh, uh, kind of castigating the people who are fake playing. Yeah, and Skrillex does a lot of stuff with his audiovisual that is more uh, flexible and allows him to improvise, like casting, you know, wearing a light suit that casts shadows on the big screen so he can move and improvise the visuals as well as the songs. And then Reynolds talks about one kind of irony of this is that the key to the popularity in this era was this experiential aspect of having to be there, of having to pay the ticket, go to Coachella, go to the Electric da Electronic Daisy Festival and be there and be there in real time with real people, which is kind of ironic in the digital age. And that leads him to a whole discussion of Skrillex's management. And I thought this was interesting. The Blood Company, they're hardcore metal specialists, bands like Atreyu, Revoker, um, is where they made their bread and butter. And they were the first people to just kind of take the old, old school. And this is something that's 
rock bands have been doing since the early 70s. I mean, this is literally the game plan of Bad Company and dinosaurs like that. Get in the bus and go to every town in America, every college town, every midside city. You know, play your Des Moines, Iowa, play your Amarillo, Texas, play your Lubbock, Texas. Get out there, get on the road, get in front of people. And they discovered that these EDM acts were a lot easier and cheaper than a rock band. You've got one performer, one or two support people. A lot of the sound is preset. You don't have to, to have technicians for mics. You don't have to have guitar tuners. You don't have to have a drum tech, et cetera, et cetera. So just a couple light people, just a couple, you know, roadies to carry the gear, your performer, and, you know, uh, it, and it becomes the main source of touring, of performer revenue because MP3s, you know, by this point, iTunes has come along and people are buying MP3s. The streaming services are coming online, although they're not massively popular yet. But no, there's no two ways around it that album sales or music sales were no longer the central revenue source for musicians, that the glory days of the 90s when they were selling $20 CDs because people wanted to buy one song with these massive profit margins and plenty of money to go around – those days are over and now performers are really having to grind to make their dough. Yeah. And they're not just uh, a, a big staple of early 2000 DJing was basically you're a DJ, you have a hit, your, your manager is fielding requests from random promoters across America or the, or the UK or wherever you, wherever your influence is growing. And you, you kind of try to weed out the super sketchy ones, but you're basically getting on a plane going who knows where to play for who knows who in front of who knows what crowd. Now around 2010, you've got the bigger artists uh, setting up their whole tours. You got, uh, as we were talking about, Skrillex uh, taking a taking a, a hands-on approach to making sure that he's not just going to towns where there are promoters that are ready to do the legwork for him. He's going and and doing, booking up all these venues and and basically hitting hitting up all of the different spaces. So these industries are taking it more upon themselves to to run this whole operation as opposed to before where you had uh, promoters, sketchy or not, more often sketchy than not, uh, just randomly booking you in an, in an odd spot. And maybe you trying to pick another place or two that you can play before your plane ticket takes you back home. Yeah, just more doing the grind and, and conquering that territory. Then he talks about dubstep's conquest in America, of America, and and that one of the key moments was the September 2006 Radio One show, The Dubstep Wars, hosted by Marianne Hobbs. And he says that all the key DJs in the scene were on this special session. Mala, Scream, Code 9, Vexed, DJ Hatcha, Lofa, Distance. They were talking about the music and the culture. It really painted a picture of what dubstep meant. That show was traded throughout the internet to the point where it's almost a cliche to say that it influenced you. So uh, a real Johnny Appleseed moment and, and the use of the internet to spread this scene far and wide. Like there, there was a, a forum, the dubstep forum, that they plugged on that show that went from a few hundred users when the show went live to over a million in 2013. So the internet is removing kind of these time lags that had separated scene geographically disparate scenes. Like in the jungle era, American fans and DJs could not get their hands on the records. The white labels would take months to come out and then come across the Atlantic. And, and by that time jungle had moved on. You couldn't hear the pirate radio unless you were in London um, or, you know, you're waiting in the mail for a cassette copy of, of Pirate Radio broadcast to arrive. The Internet killed all that. No more waiting months. Um, you could hear the latest tracks right away and, and really that, change the music. Yeah, it was really a big deal because music, had, dance music, underground dance music had become kind of constipated because you had DJs who wanted secret weapons and they would hold on to tracks and play them. I remember as a trance DJ being real cheesed off at the fact that it would if you wanted to play what the other top DJs were playing, you had to wait three to six months for them to play these tracks into the ground before they would actually release them on their labels. And of course, uh, the, the piracy and, and digital files and, and stuff like that were, were the solution to, uh, to getting everything to flow a little bit more equitably. Yeah. And this goes back all the way to, you know, Jamaica and some of the very first episodes we did in the first series where, you know, those, uh, 
impresarios of the Jamaican sound system would print up their own records and not share them with anybody else. And, and so there's always been this kind of tension of spreading the music or controlling it so that you can really blow away the crowd with something they can't hear anywhere else. And then he talks about this weird evolution that dubstep had where it evolved from a connoisseur sound to a populist favorite and that the rise of the wobble, the wise of the wobble, um, was the the key moment. And it's interesting because in the last chapter, he had talked about dubstep and he was like, what I'm missing is what's the big single idea of dubstep. And it turned out to be the wobble. Absolutely. And, you know, key tracks like Scream's Oscillata and Koki's Spongebob, which which morphs uh, Spongebob's voice into the bass part, um, you know, were key parts of, you know, that's that's kind of the wobble sound in essence. And now it's time to cue again. And this is a little off topic, but we'll introduce it. And we'll play it and then let Ryan explain after we hear it why he picked this one. This is Diplo featuring Nikki DeBee, Express Yourself from 2012. And that was Diplo featuring Nikki DeBee, Express Yourself. Why did you pick that one? Oh, well, we're not quite there yet, but we do end up started, starting to talk a little bit about Diplo and Ghetto Tech. And, and Ghetto Tech kind of leads into Trap and leads into Future Sound and everything else like that. So this is this is just a slice of Ghetto Tech uh, from 2012 when Simon Reynolds, you know, kind of staked down this chapter to give you an idea of, of the, the very different kind of latin influenced uh grimy stuff that was that was being put out by some of these top names at the time yeah there's other things going on than just bro step in this period and then we have to rush a little bit and get to covering him but um he's talking about this weird inversion where bro dubstep goes from being an underground sound for you know nose in the air connoisseurs in a very localized area of south london to this international populist sensation and he talks about one of the key moments was that it took over the the crusty rave and squatter scenes and and also the hippie jam band scene in the u.s where you know fish fans and stuff had kind of kept the legacy of the grateful dead alive and you know everywhere else in the world electronic music took over that psychedelic scene you know from goa india to ibiza everywhere else and took over from dead the old electronic electric guitar jam bands but the states were the last holdout and this is the period and dubstep was kind of the sound that helped in that um you know in in the rest of the world side trance and acid techno had, had ruled the crusty rave scenes but no more dubstep took over and they found that wobble stuff went well with ketamine, which is the new drug of choice. Ketamine, a disassociative drug, closely related to PCP or angel dust. Very interesting because PCP was a pet tranquilizer that got out to the Hells Angels and got a really burly negative reputation, whereas ketamine was held closely by doctors and nurses and used as a special treat by professionals. But they both have the same effect, which is to sort of make you feel like you're not in your body. It's a very it's not an upper. It's not a downer. It's not a hallucinogen. It's a disassociative drug. Um, and it goes great with with wobble step, apparently. I mean, that's what always uh, surprised me is is how it, it kind of got into the party scene, considering it's not much of a party drug. I always get confused when they when these, you know, you're at a party and people are doing drugs that basically tranquilize you, knock you out and put you out on the couch like uh, ketamine and uh, GHB. If dosed just right, can can hit a point where where you can, you know, feel pretty good and the music sounds pretty good. But you go just a little bit over that and you're either unconscious or you're a two-dimensional piece of of atom, atomic matter. <laughs> yeah, and, and and a lot of people complain it could about be toilet flushing, or it could be amazing music. It would sound great to you. <laughs> and a lot of people complain about the K zombies staggering around and and ruining the scene. But he but he goes back to this 
thing where dubstep transforms itself into a hardcore scene in two senses, he says. A genre that had always felt diffuse developed in the wobble a stylistic hardcore. And that new focus and sound was accompanied by the rise of a hardcore mentality. Six years into its existence, dubstep became a headstrong, having it off scene with a following of punters, not just pundits and scholars. It's the reverse of what usually happens with music. And that's why it's kind of fascinating to me. I don't know of any other instance where a scene has gone this way. Typically, the center doesn't hold. Fragmentation sets in, accelerated by the fusionization of the style with adjacent genres. The music gets mature and refined, genteel and a bit gutless. It loses the populist audience, gets artsy, and loses the young audience. But the total opposite happened with dubstep. Instead of growing up, dubstep grew down, age-wise and in terms of sophistication. Whether that's evolution or devolution has been the big crux of dissension these last four years. And then, you know, he talks about people like Casper and Rusko, who are big popularizers with tracks like Cockney Thug and Well Ard, um, you know, and this micro-edited, timberly warped baseline had become the new axis of innovation, taking the place once occupied by breakbeat science and jungle. And where jungle had Cubase software, dubstep had massive by native instruments, which was a synth plug-in for your digital audio workstation and would allow you to make those kind of what ultimately became the big Skrillex sound. He, he cites DJ Excision's 2008 Shambhala festival mix, was a key moment in the North American breakthrough that mix got passed around all over the place because it isolated the most aggressive industrial sounding tracks around. And that's where this kind of hard rock uh, thing, you know, was formalized and, and really took off. And, and, you know, then you get things like, he says it became a generational sound for young Americans designed to piss off parents. And he recommends watching the elders react to dubstep video on YouTube, which is I got, <laughs> a delight um, uh, to see the old folks just freaking out over this stuff. And of course, there's a backlash. Reynolds calls it the new NUIDM, intelligent dance music. And he was sort of staggered to see some of the same old arguments that had been rolled out against hardcore back in 1992 used once again. But he does admit that it made for a lot of good listening, a lot of good albums by people like Darkstar, Coolie G, and Code 9 on the Hyperdub label. You also had the Hessel Audio, Hot Flush. And then you had these other artists like Flying Lotus, Actress, and the Hudson Mocock from all over the world who were coming in from techno or Weird Hop backgrounds. And Weird Hop is like backpack rap or whatever, like, you know, Jay Dilla disciples who are into the artsy, artsy edge of hip hop. You know, the DJ Shadow kind of... Um, Jurassic Five kind of thing, that artsy end of hip hop that bleeds over into dance music. And um, let's see. And then he gets into this sort of lost in the mist, this whole era of, you know, he wrote a book called Retromania about what happened in the rock scene where the past became so dominant that it really sort of impeded new rock music from making a big impact. And he's arguing that the same thing was happening in uh, aspects of the electronic music scene, not so much the dance scene, but the sort of bedroom music makers that people had so much history and so much geography at their fingertips that it was hard to create a conversation with the current moment. You think that's a fair assessment? Yeah, I mean, th this this to me was the real post uh, genre era. There was a whole bunch of stuff that I just qualify as blogtronica because it doesn't fit any kind of label. Couldn't You couldn't put it out on a label. The reason that dubstep managed to specialize in so many different directions is they had so many different record labels or, you know, digital record labels, however you want to describe it these days, putting out a specific sound. But you have all of these disparate people, all these all these producers who aren't even maybe trying to create dance music, but it just ends up having a bit of a of a groove to it, creating and releasing stuff that doesn't fit anywhere and wouldn't get any attention or any place where it could release itself if it wasn't for just blogs capable of picking up stuff out in the real left field of the spectrum and and putting it in front of everybody and then uh, I, I put like stuff like what james blake was doing early on uh, as being something like that because it really was just kind of like 16 channels of james blake humming a bunch of different melodies and then <laughs> somebody remixes it with a bit of a beat and a bass to it and all of a sudden we got your we got a new kind of uh dance genre but what is it so there was there was a lot of stuff that was going on. A lot of it didn't fit. A lot of it fit what it had come before, and a lot of it uh, absorbed backwards from hip hop 
production or from pop production or just from strange ambient spaces. Yeah, kind of a Tower of Babel era, I, I would say. And then this is our last song. This is Blackout Crew, Put a Donk on It. And that was Blackout Cruise. Put a donk on it. Tell us about this one. I'm not even sure we'll get to this topic, but 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 yeah, yeah. We we've jumped now to we haven't even gotten to ghetto tech, and we're jumping all the way forward to discuss some of the weird stuff going on with the underground uh, hard dance scene and put a donk on it is kind of a novelty track that, that, that once again, jokes around when we were talking about break core, we played a novelty break core track that kind of explained break core in, in the music itself and put a donk on it kind of explains how donk music is, is just the distillation of hard house gone to the gone, gone all the way down to hell and back. <laughs> and it's pretty funny. Um, but let's talk about global ghetto tech. He says, Reynolds says, it's an umbrella term for party hard sounds like karaoke funk, reggaeton, kwaito, kumbaya, kudoro, and forgive my pronunciation on these, kuptikal, guaca. Do you have any idea how to say Gcom? I'm not sure if that's a real, if that, is that the real word or did you? That is the real word. It's a South African music. I, I ran across it when I was down there, but I don't know how to pronounce it. I've only seen it in print. Um, but, you know, music sounds that emerged from the slums of Brazil, Puerto Rico, South Africa, Colombia, Angola, Ivory Coast, Guadalupe. These exotic dance genres share one quality, impurity. They're bastard and Creole children based in the sound clash of folk forms with Western styles like hip hop, house and techno. So tons of fun stuff going on, kind of a global um, melting pot going on. He says that DJs like Diplo, Rupture and Mosca play tracks from these remote subcultures in their sets, but they also create tracks influenced by these styles of roughneck exotica. Sometimes they manage to create a whole new post-geographical genre, like Moombatan, a hybrid of reggaeton and Dutch house, which spawned neither in Puerto Rico nor Holland, but in Washington, D.C., by the DJ producer Dave Nada. So, yeah, the, the Internet is allowing people to hear stuff that historically would have taken a long time to travel and and you know all these flavors and cultures are getting mixed and matched also the the american ghettos are continuing to be fertile sources of bass heavy hybrids of gangster rap electro and techno such as hyphy from oakland jerk from la new jersey club and baltimore breaks he singles out the chicago street sound known as footwork as a particular favorite something um particularly interesting assimilated by producers like addison grove evolved from a mutant offshoot of chicago house called juke but it's more influenced by booty bass than four on the floor. So the, you know, the old two live crew electro sound and the dancers are gladiatorial, like break dancers. They're not lost in a crowd. It's not like Jack dancing where it's a whole bunch of people jacking and, and communally getting off together. It's like break dancing where it's, individuals showing off and kind of competing with each other and he says footwork is a prime proof of a recurring truth in dance music the functional styles that generally produce the real breakthroughs so stuff people are really dancing to on the streets is where you get uh, interesting stuff then he talks about baseline which is a north of england style that descended from the wawa base of gant 187 lockdown and dj narrows you had producers like t2 mr v and djq developing a style quote based around ridiculously ornate sculpting of the base sculpting of the baseline and this was one of the first genres to seize youtube's potential because they didn't have the pirate radio up north you even had a couple of pop hits like heartbroken by t2 and what's it going to be by h2o then you've got Donk out of Liverpool, which we played a little bit. It's related to Scouse House, Scouse being the people of Liverpool. A, quote, clanking pipe, plank-like percussion sound usually placed midway between the beats and giving the tracks a twangy bounce, vaguely redolent of 80s high energy. And we played Blackout Cruise, put a donk on it. You also Then he talked about Funky, which is an East London sound that didn't catch on um, beyond its local area. 
And he ultimately felt like it was too local, too customized for what the people in East London wanted to hear, but not distinctive enough to grab global attention. So any final thoughts as we wrap up this section? I had to rush through all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's a bit of a grab bag, but I feel like you can kind of throw ghetto tech uh, in, and, and some of the stuff that we were talking about with the, uh, Chicago stuff, um, we're finally getting away the number of times that we've talked in this uh, over, over various chapters about the white sound and the black sound. I feel like so many times when we're talking about black funk, it goes back to disco and, uh, you know, a Chicago or a Philadelphia sound. And all of a sudden, finally with ghetto tech, you're starting to hear sounds from Brazil, Puerto Rico, uh, lots of South America stuff, lots of Caribbean stuff, the ass shaking, funky stuff uh, come come back in. So I feel like we for for a long time, we were talking about white and black. But I feel like now we're getting really international and we're we're finding funk in different different places that we might not have expected uh, beforehand. Now, as far as, uh, you know, what was kind of going on with with gangster rap back turning into turning into dance music as well you got to look into trap music trap music uh, uh had a really interesting percussive sound to it and became a a pretty big thing for for a hot minute before it got basically swallowed and and dissolved into all dance music uh around 2015 yeah and and he also talks about how hip-hop had kind of you know the hip-hop r&b alliance with timbaland we talked about that had kind of conquered the dance scene in the early 2000s and then in the later 2000s and 2010s the euro scene comes roaring in and and suddenly is on the pop charts in america even though it's not straight instrumental tracks it, it feature you know it's all your pop suspects were suddenly doing remixes with people like uh david guetta and calvin harris etc and you know all your Britneys and and all the Lady Gagas and Madonnas, everybody, you know, Drake, were doing these remixes with this Euro style. So, um, you know, pretty fascinating. And you had producers like Will I Am of the Black Eyed Peas, Dr. Luke of Keisha Fame, um, and others that that were copying the style as well. So, um, you know, and then you had, of course, the great uh, uh, LMA, LMFAO, the grandsons of Barry Gordy. Um, and their party rock anthem. But then one last thing I want to get to is he talks about this sort of inversion of the 90s dance ethos with what was happening in the 2010s. He says the three big things of the 90s were all absent in this scene, and they were the belief in the underground, a neo-do-it-yourself ethos of self-organizing bottom-up grassroots cultures, drugs as a consciousness-raising and socially healing force expressed in America through the slogan PLUR. What's PLUR stand for? Peace, love, unity, and respect. All right. And the idea of the future, that electronic music was future music that was in the advance or avant-garde of mainstream pop that would keep evolving and mutating, but also that the idea that the music and culture together constituted a social vanguard of some kind. And he says that in the 2010s, that that um, all of those aspects were absent. And in particular, this futurism was gone and that it had been replaced by sort of a YOLO, you only live once kind of nowism. And he says nowism is kind of an analog for no future, the Sex Pistols old slogan. And, and that people, you know, the millennials and the Zoomers have been through multiple economic collapses, a dramatic shrinking of, of economic opportunity serious social dislocation and the ideology of futurism just isn't playing for the younger people of today and they're, they're living in the moment and also the technology has become so ubiquitous it's not novel anymore to have robo sounds we're all part of the machine and so what's happening is this integration of the human and and the and the electronic is pretty much complete so did EDM win in the end or or what? Maybe for now, maybe for now. And again, uh, what's going on in the mainstream doesn't really represent what's happening in the underground. I 100% agree with the three points that he that he puts out. I think it was a really good way to, to wrap up a chapter that at times was a bit of a of a of a frenzied grab bag. But but he really nailed uh, kind of the difference in what was going on, because I came into the rave scene with that 
do-it-yourself ethos. And uh, it really blew me away about a year into it where I was just thinking, you know, you're into rock, you can't book the Rolling Stones. But if you're into dance music, uh, you could book whoever you want. And now that's not really the case anymore. And, and, you know, I'm really happy that the scene has exploded to the point where uh, we can, you know, some people can rent arenas, but it also comes with the, with the, with the, with the backlash that anything being done in a, in a warehouse looks just that much more illegal. And, uh, it's really kind of the, the big, just like everything else in American society, it's the big guys that are winning out and the small people are being crushed and pushed out. And yeah, that seems to be the way of, you know, the world at this particular point in time. So the little guys are getting crushed all over the place, including in the musical world. And that's it for our discussion of Simon Reynolds' Energy Flash, A Journey Through Rave Music and Dance Culture, which I think this is the 22nd installment. And we'll be back next week with Mr. Reynolds himself. And we're going to get to interview him and ask him some questions. So Ryan, sharpen those pencils and put the thinking cap on and let's put Mr. Reynolds through his paces. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate and Ryan will be back with Simon Reynolds himself to get answers to their questions about energy flash and the history of rave music and dance culture. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.